Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In today's episode, I have a chat with local soil scientist Jess Drake. Jess is a consultant in soil and environmental regulation science. She is a science educator with a blog and is quite active on social media, which is how I came across her. She loves soil and she's passionate about helping other people understand and start to love their soil too. In this interview, we chat about her life and career, how soil health plays into climate change and what role soil management can play in mitigating climate risk and sequestering carbon. We also have a chat about what people can do to create better soil in their own backyards. On the day of the interview, I went to her house and we sat in her yard with cups of tea next to the chicken coop for our chat. That's what you can hear in the background now, and you will hear throughout our interview the sounds of the birds that inhabit her trees, her chooks, and a little bit of wind sound. We actually sat next to the chicken house for some wind protection, which unfortunately wasn't always successful. You can see photos of this day on the episode page at saltgrasspodcast.com. I also have links to her blog and other resources in the show notes of the podcast, so head over there if this conversation inspires you to learn more. As ever, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara country. Jara country is the traditional home of the Jajarung people, who have been the custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. We thank them for the care they have taken and continue to take of country. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Grassroots. 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 Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So I, I would describe myself as a soil scientist. I went to uni to do environmental science and I didn't really know what I wanted to specialise in and I was trying out a whole bunch of different courses to see what part of environmental science I really wanted to do. I had this situation actually when I was doing a course, really hated it and the only other course I could go into was soil science. It was the only other one I could fit in my schedule and I was like oh man this is going to be so boring. As a subject. As a subject Yeah. yeah. And so, anyway, I went to the first lecture for that just to see what it was like. And I had this amazing, amazing professor called John Field. And he was just so good. And I just fell in love with soils from that point and not expecting it at all. And kind of have continued doing that ever since. I ended up doing a PhD on restoration and rehabilitation of soils. I have worked in soils since I left uni in some way or another. And now I I still do soils, but I also do a lot of environmental regulation science. So it's kind of the nexus between science and policy, where science can help inform policy or law or regulations, or how they can be practically used on the ground. So yeah, that's what I do now. And the soil science that I do at the moment, it's mostly around understanding people's land. So I have a lot of people who maybe are undertaking biodiversity conservation and they might have gully erosion or tunnel erosion on their blocks that they want to try to stop Mm -hmm. and they want to manage. And so I go out and I'll do an assessment for them. 
or I work with a lot of farmers who are trying to do more sustainable land management practices, better understand their soils and what we would describe as being land capability. So what is that soil, what is that land actually capable of growing, producing and not kind of pushing the soil over its natural boundary of what it's actually capable to grow. So that just sounds smart. A lot of people, like, historically have come to Australia and just gone, great, look at these fertile plains, we will just grow what we're used to growing back in Europe or in America or whatever. And, yeah, I think we're going to explore that a bit further on, the specific nature of Australian soils. But this idea that people are now starting to get smart about what they're farming and and make it actually suit their environment sounds really good. And I've done an episode previously with Dean Belfield about the local regenerative agriculture movement, and they do a lot of education around soil with the farmers who are undergoing that so there's a there's a burgeoning movement of soil enthusiasts I think <laughs> yeah I think so too which is awesome it's it's pretty exciting to see so many people starting to care about soil when I first went into soil science over 15 years ago like it wasn't it wasn't very popular and now everyone's like oh soil's the key to like so many things in life yeah. And it's so cool that literally at 8.54 this morning, I got an email in my inbox saying the National Soil Strategy has been released. <laughs> wow. It's the first time I've seen a National Soil Strategy that's actually considered people who care for land, region ag, traditional owners, yeah. traditional knowledge, and actually trying to think about how to care for our soils, like really genuinely care for our soils. Mm. So... I had done some work in my house, which I bought almost 12 years ago. And at one point I was working with someone who was in permaculture and I just referred to buying some dirt. And I got told off so severely. So can you tell me the difference between dirt and soil? Oh, that's really funny, Ali. Um, yeah, it's, I, like, it's really funny because in the soil science community, there is a saying, don't treat soil like dirt. And I think that's because like, when we think about dirt, we think of dirty things and we think of bad things. It's got a negative kind of connotation to it. Whereas soil, soil is about life. So soil's everything that's under our feet and it helps sustain everything above our feet. So soil's formed through five soil forming factors. It's time, climate, geology, landform, which is things like rivers, streams, mountains, hills, things that shape the land and vegetation, so biology and together those things create the soil that is below our feet Mm. and then within that soil itself there's air there's water there's nutrients and salts there's organisms Mm. there's organic matter so decaying pieces of plants or animals and there's mineral material which is from the geology Mm. so all of that together really creates soil I like to try to think of it as being more like a living organism because it's just got so many components to it and it's alive that there's animals and fungi and plants living in it Mm, great so if all of this stuff is in soil generally your microbes and everything else you were just talking about what makes for particularly healthy soil and what makes for unhealthy soil Unhealthy soil, we call it degraded soil. So degraded soil is soil that's low in organic matter and carbon, can't hold water, it's more susceptible to erosion, 
often has very few nutrients around here in the gold fields area because of the extent of mining the gold diggings as well as how many times the trees were chopped down i believe it, someone told me in this area the a lot of the trees were chopped down up to three times so first for the gold mining and then for different industrial facilities and so the soils become really skeletal so it's really thin it's really stony and there's not a lot of organic matter or substance to it that helps with nutrient cycling. I'm amazed with this landscape here in central Victoria how in winter you get grass and everything looks green and nice but as soon as that summer heat comes in it's like the soil here has no capacity to hold moisture it almost instantly gets cracked and when you try and garden you very quickly get to what you feel like is either stone or clay it turns into concrete in summer it's it's really hard to handle i actually had to dig a hole one summer and hired a jackhammer literally hired a jackhammer so that i could <laughs> get down deep enough <laughs> oh no yeah and you're totally right like that's one of the things that's happened here is that because of all of that erosion that's occurred like they say that most of our soil is now in the Loddon and the murray river and even further out possibly even out in the ocean and we've lost all that organic matter that helps to protect soil and to draw in moisture and to capture that moisture and so it ends up becoming like concrete because mm -hmm. it's all it's all gone but like you're slowly seeing it recover you're seeing all the trees come back and you can see some understory coming back and that's gonna bring back some of that organic matter and that organic carbon back into the soils and that's really what a good soil is it's a soil that's got plenty of organic matter plenty of nutrients is able to retain water water is actually more important than anything else in soil because without water you don't have nutrient cycling so the organisms can't cycle nutrients which also means they can't draw carbon into the soil and you don't have decomposing organic matter so without moisture without the soil being able to retain moisture you don't have those natural processes happening which is so fundamental to healthy soil so if the soil dries out completely over summer does that just take it back to square one each year or it just sort of it slows down its capacity yeah it just slows down its capacity so i completely agree with you in summer here you see everything just go bare and it almost goes into hibernation over summer because there's no moisture in the soil when traditionally there would have been and you hear like jaja Wurong talk about upside down country that this is all upside down and there's erosion and salinity and there's heavy metals in the soils as a result of the mining that's occurred and that's what it is is like you can walk around and you see these mullock heaps or these piles everywhere it's the soil that's been turned upside down on top of their country and so you bought this place three years ago and we're sitting in your backyard right now and people <laughs> will hear the chooks in the background and, and all the galahs and whatever other birds are around yeah. but you were just telling me earlier that you've had to deal with the long ago results of mining in your backyard yeah that's right so my yard is really interesting we actually have soil so down to the back of the block here i've got some fruit trees growing and that's all in soil which is amazing lots of people say there's no soil around here there is soil it's just 
not everywhere anymore. But then um, to the front of our house and to the side from where we're sitting, I have mine tailings. And I have two different types of mine tailings. I have sandy mine tailings and I have shaley mine tailings. And they're really high in arsenic. And that arsenic comes from two different places. So arsenic is naturally occurring in this region. So it's naturally in the soils and it's naturally in the geology. But what happened with the mining and the history of the gold mining is they used arsenic to extract the gold, but also as a result of the processing of the rock to get the gold out, they increased the concentration of arsenic in those tailings. So they're really, really high in heavy metals and you can't eat from it. Mm. It's above the threshold that they suggest you put plants in and so in that area I've repurposed it for wicking beds mm. because that's something I can do with that spot. I've got used all secondhand materials to build my wicking beds and I'm still being able to use it in a sustainable way. In front yard I've it's sandy tailings and I decided to plant it all out with natives and mulched it and I mulched it to try to get the water back in the soils or the water back into the tailings in the hope that we could kickstart nutrient cycling yeah. in the tailings. So for those who don't know, wicking beds are a type of raised garden bed that have a very efficient use of water and it does not allow the plants to reach their roots into the soil at all. It's really sad as a soil scientist going, oh, I can't put the plants in the ground. So how did, how did you know that there was arsenic in your soil? Is that because you're a soil scientist and you were able to test it? So a normal person moving here may not know. No, normal people that move here have no idea and in... And in fact, not long after I moved here, someone got referred to me because they were concerned about possible arsenic and mine tailings in the yard. And I went over to their house and had a look. And there's a service that's based in Sydney where you can send five samples and a $20 note and they'll test it for you. And the tests include arsenic and mercury, which are the things that we have to worry about the most in our area. And that's called VeggieSafe and it's at Macquarie Uni. So it's a way that anyone who moves here can check to see if they have arsenic in the area where they're planning to grow food for their household. Yeah, that's great to know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put a link to that in the podcast description. <laughs> so if anyone in Australia really wants to test their soil, you can do that, which is really important because if you didn't know, you would blithely grow your leafy greens or your citrus and, and then be consuming it those heavy metals yeah that's it and like there's an amount in the soil that's safe and then there's an amount that isn't safe so this is talking about those amounts that aren't safe and so veggie safe will send the report back to you and it says you know this is what's in your soil and this is that threshold and it's a threshold in soil it's not what's in the plant because it's really hard there's not a lot of science about the uptake of heavy metals into different types of plants. Mm. We know that it happens in those plants, but not the exact amount. And in the soil, the heavy metal might be in different forms. It could be in a form that's really plant accessible, so the plant can easily get to it, or it might be in a form that's more sequestered, so being hard to access by plants and other organisms in the soil. But that 
accessibility of metals or of nutrients and salts anything that's in soil including carbon it changes over time as you go through nutrient cycling so just because it's not accessible at one time doesn't mean it's not going to be accessible later so it's hard to kind of understand where you are on that cycle you mentioned carbon in the soil as part of the organic matter i hear people talking about poorly used soil contributing to climate change by releasing carbon and well-managed soil being an opportunity to sequester carbon. Can you explain a bit more how carbon works in soil? Yeah, so I think what's happened in Australia with our soils is we've lost a lot of carbon in our soils. I've been thinking about this a lot and we really have lost it as a result of colonisation, of European colonisation. So We've come in and we've undertaken agriculture that's not appropriate for our soils. We've undertaken development. We've done masses of amounts of deforestation and huge land use change. And we're mining, we're undertaking all these big, big scale things, big scale change. And a result of all of that, the vegetation's changed. And with that change in vegetation, there's a change in the soil because the two things are interconnected and that soil's become more exposed to climate, to air, to water and we're pulling the soil over and over and over, tilling it and with that we're releasing the carbon so the carbon is being released into the atmosphere as gas but it's also being washed away as a result of erosion and so we're losing the sponginess of our soil. I love how Bruce Pascoe talks about how they talked about a lot of the soils used to be a sponge and we've lost that sponge and that's where where the carbon is so important. It's creating that sponge. So as a sponge you mean A, it literally is spongy, like it's soft and sort of bouncy, but also it can absorb. Yeah, that's right. So as a sponge, it can absorb water, it can absorb nutrients, and it can absorb carbon. So what we really need to think about with carbon sequestration is recreating that sponge. So it's adding water and organic matter in some way of management. There's all sorts of different ways back to our soil so that our soil can draw carbon back into it and pull the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil where it should be. So there's a few different ways that can happen. One is through soil organisms. So soil organisms with the right type of moisture and food in the soil, they, like you and I, will go through respiration. So that respiration process that they go through where they're turning organic matter into food and then they're actually pooping I suppose excreting (laughs) Excreting (laughs) organic matter into the soil so they're actually causing the cycling of carbon within the soil themselves bacteria is probably the biggest one in soils there's I think they were saying there's in every teaspoon of soil there's over a million different organisms and most of them are bacteria And so bacteria will go through that process where they're degrading organic matter that's in the soil and utilising it for food. And then that excretion helps to bind soil together. It actually goes into the soil matrix itself and helps all the nutrients and the clays and mineral material all bind. 
it's when you've got the carbon binding all the soil together that's what you really want with sequestration you want the carbon to help bind the soil together and that itself helps to continue with the sponge formation mm. so if you have binding you've got more water going in you've got more nutrients going in you've got more carbon going in and so you end up getting this nice constant process of getting more carbon in what releases the carbon again like what how long will the carbon stay there so that is a really good question because just like the heavy metals which we were talking about before carbon goes through cycles and so when it's all the way stuck in the clay it will stay there for a really long time and that's that's the stuff that we really want for carbon sequestration but if we do management activities like constantly till the soil all the soil gets broken up and so it's exposed to the environment again and then you have the process of it it going up into the atmosphere or being washed away again but the other thing that can happen is that it naturally cycles so you've got carbon constantly being broken down into smaller and smaller smaller carbon chains and different types of carbon by different level of organisms. So you've got your worms at your starting point kind of breaking down the big bits of organic matter and then maybe the next organism might be something like, oh, I don't know, yeah, beetle or something will eat their excretions and then you you have the microorganisms with that excretion or the fungi and then you're getting smaller and smaller pieces of carbon in the soil. So you've kind of got this continuous like spiral, I suppose, of breaking down carbon into the soil until it's at that point where it's actually helping to bind the soil together. People talk about planting hundreds of trees or thousands or millions of trees to save the world. What role do trees and other plants play in that? And how useful is it to actually plant a trillion trees? Yeah, vegetation is so important for soils. Vegetation, any type of vegetation, really will help to protect soils. It protects soils from the water and from the wind. So that's helping protect those losses that might occur from soil. But it also helps to draw carbon down into the soil. So where you have all those roots and those root systems in soil, there's all these organisms that live around those root systems and there's being water drawn into the soil and there's nutrient cycling happening. And that's where a lot of those carbon cycles are also occurring in the soil is at that root interface. And then you have organic matter falling off of your trees or coming off of your vegetables into the ground and that's providing that food for the organisms that are then going to use it to get the carbon back into the soil. So vegetation is so important for soil and really the two are so interconnected you can't have one without the other. Part of the tree's respiration is to literally draw carbon out of the atmosphere and then utilise it. And I guess it then gets locked into its cells and its biology and then falls to the ground and becomes part of the soil, unless we burn it or whatever else we do. And I guess they also create all the ecosystems that then support all the animals who are also carbon creatures. We're all made of carbon, aren't we? Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's it, that's it. I'm not so sure, but I, I remember reading some research at one point about how much carbon a tree can actually put into soil as well. Like plants do put 
carbon themselves into soil from that respiration activity as much as from that organic matter that comes from them as well. Because I think a lot of people when they think about planting trees they're just thinking about that respiration cycle but what you're actually saying is that it's there's so many more layers to that including at, at the root level and how the trees sort of support the rest of what happens in soil. Absolutely. What human activities impact our soil and and at what scale? And, and what do people maybe worry about that they don't need to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So I think like I was saying before, uh, European colonisation has had the greatest impact to soils and at a big scale through primarily deforestation and inappropriate agriculture for our land capabilities. I was talking about land capability before, what our land is actually able to produce sustainably. And I think the biggest ones for me really are that broad scale industrial agriculture where there's been a fixation on getting as much out of the soil as you possibly can to the point where soil has become degraded it doesn't take moisture anymore, it becomes hydrophobic, so water can't get into the soil. It repels it. And yeah, it repels it, yeah. Oh, and there's no organic matter le- left, that sponge is gone. Mm. So in terms of the permaculture and organics and biodynamics movements, yeah. and even regenerative agriculture, it's all about building up healthy soil. Yeah. And what does industrial agriculture do differently like to keep their soil that's completely depleted functioning for them and producing huge crops what do they do yeah that's a really interesting question what we really see with that agriculture or unsustainable agriculture is what i'll call it is the amount of inputs that occur in those soils and often mined or synthetic inputs to keep the plants alive but not keep the soil alive so things like phosphorus that's often synthetically made or it's taken from a mine and then it goes through this acid process to make this super concentrated super phosphate or same with nitrogen one of the things that happens a lot is the addition of gypsum So gypsum is a calcium salt and it helps to bind soil together. So that's when the soils have been so degraded that they don't bind, they don't clump, they don't have that sponge and so they add gypsum to it. Or sometimes these big farms will just keep buying up more land and then using more and more and more. They've depleted one so they'll move on to another. But these, I'm talking about really poor stewardship of the land here and I think there's a real cultural shift by a lot of farmers who care about their land to go towards more sustainable practices. So a lot of the sustainable changes aren't just happening within organics or biodynamics and permaculture, it's happening in those traditional farms too. They're going, oh man, climate change is real oh man, my soil, what have I done? What has happened from like these generations of people who don't understand this land? What have they done to it? It's a complete mess. And they're going, what can I do? How can I contribute to caring for my land, but still being able to produce something and to feed people? And I think even 
a lot of traditional agriculture are thinking about practices like no-till agriculture so where you stop turning over your soil and you think about keeping the soil intact when you're planting it out so you put tiny little holes in the ground instead of ripping the whole thing over or you have the smoke haze every year with the crop stubble that's burning so that's the little bits of plant that's left in the ground after harvest and a lot of them are stopping burning and instead they're letting that incorporate as organic matter back into the ground. So there's these changes that are starting to happen or are happening on a bigger and bigger scale in Australia and I can see there's a real movement towards changes across the agricultural space in general. And I think some of the other things that I get really worried about with soils is and with agriculture too is I don't we don't really think about how water and soil are interconnected so with a lot of agriculture in Australia especially in the Murray-Darling Basin system where we're stealing that water from the environment to put into agriculture in places that maybe it's not capable of like there wasn't that water there before why are we putting that water there now it's not it's not sustainable it's not a appropriate place to be doing that agriculture right and as a consequence of that we're taking water away from natural environments but also from the soils in those natural environments so those soils might have been used to flooding over and over and over again and now they're not getting those flooding if you don't have that water in the soil you don't have that nutrient cycling you don't have that carbon sequestration Mm -hmm. happening and so if you're not having that regular flooding then that soil is inherently changing Mm -hmm. and you're losing carbon but it also means if that soil is changing that the plants associated with that soil are changing too and also all of the animals that maybe migrate or rely on the flooding and I I did an episode a while back now about the film When the River Runs Dry by two local filmmakers who were exploring the fish kill in the Murray-Darling Basin and it really looked into those natural cycles of flooding and stuff and now we're building suburbs on floodplains and things (laughs) because we're just like managing the water so tightly we're not allowing it to spill the banks anymore to save people's homes but actually those homes shouldn't be there. And we're using that water on places that should be dry. Yeah, I completely agree. We're still in that colonial headspace of thinking about how can we shape the land? How can we use it for our best interests? And not thinking about, well, how how do we care for the land? How does the land naturally work? How do we work with the land? Mm. And I think it's that we haven't gone through that cycle yet. And I think that case of putting houses on floodplains that that's a broader development issue which worries me as well because there's a lot of controversy at the moment especially in in Macedon Ranges Shire about being allowed to build on arable farming land Mm. and development is slowly encroaching more and more on healthy good soil soil that's actually got good capability or might be full of good native plants and vegetation and is healthy and we're just putting houses there Mm. and like and getting that balance of places for people to live versus how should we actually be using this land how should we be caring for this land Mm. it's really bothers me 
So we've been doing a bit of collaboration with a little ethical NGO called Ethical Fields and they're really interested in effective altruism of degraded land. So that's working out what is the most effective with the dollar and with time and with resources way of using degraded land. So is it putting in solar panels if the land is really degraded and like it's just not recoverable? Is it planting things? Is it community gardens? Is it in the cases of old mine voids? Can you put in little hydropower stations? Like what what are the ways that you can use this degraded land that's going to be beneficial? It tries to decarbonize and sequester carbon and and is good for community that's really ultimately what they're thinking about so they're kind of spread out all around australia some of them live in melbourne some of them are in newcastle and yeah they work with um, a lot of communities in those spaces in australia we've got so many different environments from tropical rainforests up north to alpine areas to desert what can you tell me broadly about australia and australian soil as unique to other places in the world yeah australian soils are some of the oldest soils in the world and because they're so old they're naturally pretty poor if you think about it in a european agricultural context so they they don't have a lot of nutrients they don't have as much carbon they don't have as many organisms as maybe soils in europe and we've done this thing where we directly compare our soils in australia with soils overseas soils in north america or canada or europe or And you can't do that because our soils are so different. They're Mm. formed through completely different processes. Mm. They've been here in a geological sense a lot longer than a lot of the soils in those countries. So the biggest difference between our soils in Australia and the soils in those places are that the soils in places like Europe and North America they're newer they're much much newer because a lot of them have been formed through glacial processes and they've been formed through glacial processes that didn't happen that long ago i have cousins in new zealand and they've got very tall (laughs) impressive mountains and america's got beautiful mountain ranges and so is europe and and through asia and they look at our mountains and they laugh and they know they're not really mountains, they're just hills. <laughs> and our most impressive mountains are not really mountains to them. Yeah. Be- but that's sort of a sign of how old yeah, the mountain how old ranges are. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right, Ali. <laughs> yeah, completely right. Yeah, we've just had so much weathering in Australia, just that constant rain and wind and rain and wind and rain and wind. Mm-hmm. But the roundedness, you know how you see pictures of Mount Kosciuszko and it's really round, it's not this big tall peak. Mm-hmm. And it's that roundedness that actually demonstrates that really long erosion process where it's happened over hundreds of thousands of years. Whereas all those other countries that you're talking about with the big peak, they haven't had nearly as much erosion because they're really pointy. (laughs) And so just thinking about the world, how does Africa or, say, China compare? 
I know China's got massive mountain ranges in the Himalayas, but yeah. so sort of that plains or the steppes. Yeah, so they are, they have a lot of really old soils as well because they're similar. They haven't gone through more recent either glacial or volcanic like in in New Zealand processes. So they've got really old soils too. I have heard, and I'd have to double check this, that we do have our soils are older than. China or Africa in those places where they have the flatter kind of more arid landscapes as well. What you're saying is that naturally Australia has the oldest soil which is more depleted but when white people first invaded and colonised they have descriptions of here in central Victoria the landscape being beautifully lush and deep deep like knee-deep soft soils and and even the way the plants all interacted we we had massive trees and open plains and all sorts yeah no Ali you're totally right and I think that the thing to think about with that is that our plants and animals have adapted to this old soil so of course it was lush and beautiful because all those plants were supposed to be here they were protecting the soil or in harmony with the soil they were all working together and we had our first nations people who knew how to care for the country they knew what to grow where all the beautiful murnong fields that were everywhere they knew what the land could sustain and i think that's Europeans came here and they went oh we've got to do the same things as Europe but they had this soil this new fresh soil that was full of nutrients and that could sustain those plants and the plants that they brought here but the soils here weren't adapted for those plants Mm -hmm. they took it completely out of context and didn't stand back and go hey what are the First Nations people actually doing here like how are they how are they looking after this country yeah yeah Yeah, that's really interesting because I think the assumption obviously was hey these people don't have our technology and they don't have our farming methods they must have just not been smart enough to figure it out But actually what we're hearing through people like Bruce Pascoe and others is how sophisticated the Indigenous way of living on this land was and how actually they didn't need all the trappings of civilization because they had figured out. (laughs) Yeah, they totally had everything figured out. (laughs) Then our ancestors came along and just screwed everything up. (laughs) Let's talk about you and your blog and what you're doing locally because when I first came across you it was on Facebook (laughs) and you just posted something about soil and I was like oh wow I should totally talk to you you sound really interesting and when I commented saying oh I'd love to chat to you on my show so many people said I'd love to hear an interview I really want to hear that that's such a great idea (laughs) so you're known locally because you've been running a little blog about soil maybe just tell me about what you're doing with that blog and what you're hoping people will pick up from what you're saying I actually I started a blog in about 2010 it was during my PhD and I just needed to do something creative and fun with soils. (laughs) It wasn't just hyper-focused on doing research. My plan with that blog was to make it an engaging, fun, interesting and accessible way to understand soils and soil scientists. And I had a lot of fun with it at the time because I met other awesome soil scientists around the world. I met other science communicators. It was just when science communication was really starting to take off. 
and my blog ended up going to the then Prime Minister Julia Gillard. They took it as an example to her because there wasn't there wasn't a lot of it at the time. That was amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, That's and really cool. I got invited to like conferences, and it was just a bit. It got big and. Uh, I'm neurodiverse and it got a bit too much and I actually stopped doing the blogging for quite a number of years because I just didn't have the um, social energy to put into it but it's something that I really love doing I love science communication I'm really want open accessible science for anyone people should be able to have access to that knowledge and so I started blogging again in about 2018 on my works blog and so I work at a small environmental consulting company called Murraying Earth Sciences. So it means mud in Wiradjuri. Jules, who started the business, she lives near Wiradjuri country and has Wiradjuri friends. And so that? that's where it came, the name came from. Where is it? So she lives in Canberra. Okay. So, but Canberra is actually Ngunnawal country. Yeah. So yeah, I started blogging again on there and first I started blogging about I did a series called climate change in your backyard and I started talking about things you can think about with climate change adaptation in your own backyard so again we're sitting in my backyard thinking about climate change adaptation is I've put in some rainwater tanks and like I'm also privileged to be able to do that because it does cost money and not everyone can afford to do that so then I've also thought about things that other people can do that don't cost so much money as well so thinking about the type of plants you put in your yard so so I've put in a whole bunch of different type of food plants so European things but also native species Auntie Julie is the one to talk about all of this so I'm not going to go into any detail but I've put in a bunch of bush foods that I know can live around here but I've also thought about native plants that I've put in I haven't just put in endemic plants or native plants that are known to be in this region I've also thought about we're going to be like Dubbo or like Mildura in you know 30 50 80 years time yeah that's kind of still up in the air so I thought well, what plants live there and planted some of those here too I've gotten some kangaroo grass seeds that have come from that area mm and planted them here because they should be more adapted to those sort of conditions that we're expecting. So when we moved here I went oh like now I've got a garden I can actually think about what I can do to adapt to climate change not just for me personally and for terms of food but also for the biodiversity so thinking about putting in plants that can help sustain that biodiversity and I went to this awesome website and it's a collaboration um, between the Bureau of Meteorology and I think CSIRO and Australian government and you can go and look up your climate analogue you can go this is where I live and it'll say what the climate's going to look like in 20 years 50 years 80 years where you live and it will compare it with somewhere else in Australia that's already like that so if you go to this website it says oh yeah this part of Victoria is going to be like Dubbo 
Mm. And Dubbo is quite arid. I don't think it's described as completely arid. I think it's described as semi-arid. So that means it has lower rainfall. So I think they have 400 millimetres, 450 millimetres a year. We currently sit on about 550 millimetres a year. It has less rain in winter than what we currently do here. So we're going to be expecting less rain in winter. And some of the other things that they're talking about is longer summer periods. So we're going to have hotter, drier summers as well. And drier, not necessarily as a result of evaporation, but because of the heat, because it's going to be hotter. So thinking about plants that are adapted to those type of environments and planting them here, we can think about trying to create spaces where we're still going to have plants for animals and for ourselves and to try to cool the landscape that's around us too, to try to get those local temperatures down. And there's some people in town who are doing a lot about that as well, looking at species that are climate cooling and how they're adapted to different climate change scenarios. So you started putting that information into your blog with some achievable tips for backyards. Yeah. And so what's your blog called? It's just our work blog. It's called the Murraying Earth Sciences blog. And we blog about all sorts of things. More recently, I was blogging about, and this is how he found me, about common soil problems in your backyard. So when you're worried about soils killing your plant, what are the kind of investigative things you can do to work out what is causing that problem? And that came out of community concern like I wrote it because of community concern I had a lot of friends acquaintances and colleagues in town who were worried about purchasing soil or organic matter that was contaminated Mm -hmm. and so I I was like well how can I provide a way for people to think through what that might mean. Mm -hmm. Recently here right through central Victoria and into Melbourne as well there were suppliers selling soil and compost which was maybe I don't even know what the story is you might know the story but it was sort of industrial perhaps compost rather than the sort of compost you have in your own backyard. (laughs) I do and I don't because I, I know that there was a concern that there was a herbicide in the soil and one of the things that I haven't seen so I can't comment on it very much is testing results so I know there was concern about it and I know some people who were really worried about it could afford the testing because the testing is really expensive it can be thousands of dollars and it's really not accessible Mm. and and it's the responsibility of the person who removes that soil and then sells that soil or that organic material to ensure that it will not be a risk of harm to human health or the environment. It's their responsibility legally. legally. And so like really that onus for paying for those tests should be on them, not on the individual. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the things that has happened is like if this can happen when we've got legal structures in place to try to minimise these contamination events occurring. What can we do as individuals to try to avoid that scenario happening again? I talked a bit about that in the blog, but some take-home messages or some key messages. It's make your own compost. If you can, you can think about buying mushroom compost. So the reason why I suggest mushroom compost, you can buy organic if you're really like worried buy organic um, certified organic make sure it's certified but mushroom compost it has to be food safe so because it has to be food safe it's less likely to have 
chemicals in it. Mm. A lot of the compost I've used when I've had to bring stuff in because I'm not making enough from our own compost setup mm. has been mushroom compost because I know it's likely to be nice and clean. Yeah. Some of the things people can do to protect soils, care for soils, help carbon sequestration is plant things. If you've got space to plant things, plant things. Plant things in pots, plant things in ground, plant things. <laughs> plant things everywhere. <laughs> or if you don't have space, and a lot of people don't, or a lot of people don't have access, or they might not be able to physically be able to do that either, is to think about community organisations that do that type of work. So join your local land care. I know the land care group that I'm part of they're trying to make it really accessible so maybe if you can't get down on the ground to dig things you might be able to help organize the plants or the stakes for the planting so doing things that don't require so much physical activity go to your local community garden and yeah there's some of the things that I think are really fun things that people can do to look after their soil and think about carbon sequestration so people can make their own compost and you can apply that in your garden where you're growing non-natives but don't put it where you're growing natives <laughs> because the natives might get shocked from all the nutrients but you can use mulch so rock mulch or weed free mulch for your native and that helps lock the moisture in the soil and also provides food to your soil organisms as well so you're starting to get that nutrient cycling and then that carbon sequestration and it protects the soil from wind and rain and the other thing is to learn from the traditional custodians of your country like what did they do how did they manage their land how do they want you to care for their country as well and really listen to them and learn from them mm. That idea that you can shock your natives with too much nutrients really brings back that point you were saying earlier about how Australian soils are really different to places in the world that have newer soils and how much our plants have adapted to these soils. They don't want that much. <laughs> no, they need some nutrients to grow. And in some areas like the mine tailings that I have in my front yard, I had to give them a little bit of specially formulated native plant fertiliser, which has got low amounts of nutrients in it because I knew that those tailings were very unlikely to have any nutrients. So that was to just give them a little push to help them to get started and then cycle their own nutrients through. But yeah, our plants are adapted to this environment and adding richness <laughs> to them may not, is not always a good thing. <laughs> so you're not just a blogger and social media soil expert. Tell us a little bit about the business that you're in and what you guys do. I would say that I'm a, a consultant in soil and environmental regulation science and my co-worker Jules, she owns the business on paper but what we are doing is working in a more collaborative, cooperative sort of way. So we all bring work in and we share the work with each other and we share the money that comes in in a fair and transparent way and we help each other bring in work. We all have different skill sets. Jules is actually a geochemist, environmental chemist. So her speciality is understanding how chemicals move through the environment. Mm. And that's not just human-made chemicals, that's things like nitrogen and phosphorus. Yeah, and arsenic, exactly. <laughs> so, so that's what she does. Whereas I do the really kind of like 
hardcore soil sciencey stuff like understanding how soils work or doing the erosion assessments so some of the work we're doing at the moment is with federal government and it's on chemicals and how chemicals might impact on the environment in a negative way and so Jules is doing all the science behind that because that's what she does but then I'm doing the translating the science into a policy and like legal context so kind of merging the two together to provide something back to federal government that's going to be useful for them. It's got this, the hard science backing, but that they can use it in a practical way within the legal structure that they've created. Mm. Yeah. Well, that brings up a whole other suite of questions <laughs> <laughs> about policy and how the law impacts our use of soil in a country like Australia and other countries around the world have different laws, obviously, and, and, and particularly how our government helps or hinders our use of soil. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it could be a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, like, I think I, I reckon, like, talking to someone like Anne Paulina, who mm. talks about the law and the law... I think that that's a really important person to talk to. Maybe what I'll ask is, do you see your science education and your blogging as impacting how you communicate to politicians? (laughs) Because they're they're people who are not trained in it, you know, so you're trying to communicate with people who don't have the scientific background. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think the science communication really helps with how to think through the real hard technical things and try to explain it in a way that's easy to understand and that has real world meaning for people so it's not just about scientists get trapped in a like well we know that this is happening so why don't people just do it and that's what people always say about science communication it's stepping out of the science and going okay so we know these things we'd like people to change how do we make it relevant to them how do we communicate it in a way that's actually going to be useful and I think that's been really helpful for me with doing things like bring science into policy development because I can go okay so they really need these things they need to understand it in this way how can I communicate the importance of these issues to them in a way that's going to be relevant and useful and is simple and easy to understand mm. and so I think it's definitely helped with having conversations with people absolutely mm. yeah I did an interview with a woman who wrote a book about communicating climate change and how to talk about climate change in ways that make a difference it's Rebecca Huntley and it's really interesting how to make it relevant to people who maybe have zero interest in science or an intolerance of science and don't want to know about science. And the climate crisis is happening because facts and figures don't work. You need to actually make it relevant to their lives, as you said, and make it accessible to their understanding of the world. I feel like I'm seeing a change in how people are talking about climate and how they're trying to make it accessible. (laughs) Yeah, when I was at uni there was a little climate change not-for-profit on campus and I remember talking to one of the ladies there one day and she said to me and I've taken this with me and because I'm not good at it and I am going to admit I'm not good at this she says delight don't fright and I tend to err on the like everything's terrible it's terrible (laughs) and I have to step back and go well actually no not everything is terrible 
how can we delight people to to engage them with change and to engage them with the climate crisis and I think I try to do that in my blog by rather than going everything is terrible here's some practical things that you can do because anyone can do things that are going to be delightful and they're not and it's not just for climate change it's for biodiversity it's for life it's for beauty it's for caring for the land and it's remembering to step back and go what is good like what is good oh how do we get to good step out of the fear yeah step out of the fear So that was Jess Drake, consultant in soil and environmental regulation science, science educator and blogger about all things soil. There are links to her blog and the website of the business she works for in the show notes if you're listening as a podcast. If you're listening on the radio, you can go to saltgrasspodcast.com for all of those things. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Alison Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, salt, of the earth, people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.